We're going to have an honest, open debate between the President of the United States and the one man we believe has the insight and the cojones to stand up to him. So first, joining us tonight, George W. Bush, 43rd President of the United States. Welcome, Mr. President. Good evening. I'm pleased to take your questions tonight. Well, thank you very much, sir. I'm pleased to ask. <laughs> Taking the other side, joining us from the year 2000, Texas Governor and Presidential Candidate George W. Bush. Good evening. Thank you, Governor. Mr. President, you won the coin toss. The first question will go to you. Why is the United States of America using its power to change governments in foreign countries? We must stand up for our security and for the permanent rights and the hopes of mankind. The United States of America will make that stand. Well, certainly that represents a bold new doctrine in foreign policy, Mr. President. Governor Bush, do you agree with that? Yeah, I'm not so sure the role of the United States is to go around the world and say this is the way it's got to be. That's a difference of opinion, and, and certainly that's what this country is about. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KLX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Brickley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. In today's Brickley Rock, we will be talking about stem cells, brain development, and censorship. This is Lynn Lee. Also joining us is Brian Gerke, who will be talking to Edmund Bowles on his new book, Einstein Defiant. In addition, you can find out what a fiber optic cable is good for. Stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Cox. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And this is Lindley. Oh, great. How's everyone doing this weekend? Pretty good. Pretty weekend. good. Nice weather. Indeed. Hopefully it stays that way for a little while. So there's something that's been bothering me for quite a while. And what's that? Well, this issue that's been going on um, in the news, and, you know, I've come to this very painful conclusion that I have to state today, unfortunately, which is I think stem cells should be banned. And why is that? Oh, no. You've become, you become part of the Christian right, is that? Yes. <laughs> it's morally wrong. And why do you say that? Why do you say that, well, George Bush Jr.? <laughs> I just had this horrendous thought the other day. What if there was a defective clone of George Bush? <laughs> I think we already have that clone. <laughs> Yeah, we know how the sun turned out, right? <laughs> um, all right. 
besides that, <laughs> which I think is is indeed a good argument, but but I'm only talking about a very specific case of stem cell cloning. Okay, so right. in general, I I think it's a very important field of research. And it turns out in Congress there's debate going on what kind of uh, federal funds should be available for such research. Some of us know that the Bush administration before August 9th of 2001 said that they would limit funding to only 78 lines available at the time. Uh-huh. And it turns out only 19 of them are actually usable. Huh. And unfortunately, all of them are contaminated with mouse feeder cells. Oh. <laughs> which makes, you know, working them pretty difficult. Right. Unless you want the uh, mouse-human uh, <laughs> hybrid. <laughs> hey, mice have some really good attributes, okay? I, yeah, you know. <laughs> They're cute. Some of my best friends are mice. <laughs> actually, my only friends are mice, but that's... <laughs> So there's a, there's a campaign going on in the House to lift this restriction, get more lines available, more funding available for stem cell research. Okay, so it's, it's basically just more lobbying to uh, at least open up the minds of the legislatures and to what we really need to do as far as uh, right. getting more of these stem cell lines. So uh, if anyone's concerned out there, email or mail their uh, congressman. Yes. Get the vote going. Do that, do that regularly. So have you guys ever thought of how your brain developed? I think regularly, and then... <laughs> it's still developing, I think. Yeah, and then once my brain stopped developing, I stopped thinking about how it developed. <laughs> well, these researchers at the National Institute of Mental Health did a 15-year study, and they made a, basically a movie about, about how the brain developed. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So they use magnetic resonance imaging, studying 13 volunteers between the age of 4 and 21 through mm-hmm. a span of 15 years. And they applied a brain mapping technique that enables them to compare the different um, individuals' brain and how they develop. And so they found that the brain first develops the region that is responsible for process motion and the five senses. Oh, okay. So so, pretty... so what were they actually measuring? Was it like uh, the amount of cells or uh, the connections or that kind of thing? Right, right. Wow. They, were, they were seeing like basically seeing, I, I don't know what chemical signature they were looking at, uh-huh. mm-hmm. but they were using MRI to map all these developments. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they could see basically the brain, uh, I guess, neurons growing and uh, dying over time. Yeah, yeah, and definitely. Wow. And it's interesting because they also, the mapping also showed that as you get old, older, the neural connections, it, when they become unnecessary, the brain kind of doesn't stop developing that portion. And so they mm-hmm. only promote the connections are important. Very cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, I seem to have a lot of garbage <laughs> memories right now. <laughs> Not sure where it came from. Yeah, we got to get rid of those uh, unused connections. or the. <laughs> right. And so this movie actually shows how important the timing and the degree of the brain development because mm-hmm. if the brain development, any aspect of that is off, then mm-hmm. it can be responsible for autism or uh, child childhood um, sis- schizophrenia. Okay. Yeah. So where can we see this movie? Is it going to be like the trailer to Harry Potter or something? <laughs> well, this is um, the work is published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Oh, our favorite journal. Uh, yes. <laughs> PNAS. PNAS. This week, and um, the researchers are Ninting Gokte and his team at the uh, again the National Institute of Mental Health. All right, so uh, are you tired of the uh, government censoring all uh, your documents? They actually do that? <laughs> you know, I think I'm I, looking junk mail, you know. If they would only censor the junk mail, that would actually be good. Right, right. <laughs> I don't need to know about various enlargement creams. That's all I'm saying. 
but it turns out that actually a, a new group, a group of researchers at the uh, university in Ireland, uh, Dublin City, have developed a computerized method where they can actually uh, figure out what the blacked out portions of uh, censored documents are. Hmm. Very useful. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> so this is actually quite uh, interesting. Uh, a cryptographer named uh, David Nash Nakash, uh, along with his uh, colleague, graduate student Claire Whelan, had devised this when they uh, took a classified document from the recent uh, 911 uh, hearings, mm -hmm. and they ran uh, a, a couple of sentences through this uh, algorithm to check the blacked-out print. And basically, it was a very simple algorithm. They just figured out what the font was, figured mm -hmm. out about the size of what the blacked-out portion was, and then it just had the computer go through all the possible words that could fit in that size space, given that font size. And, wow. then, and then another algorithm goes through and says, which one makes grammatic sense? And then that narrows down the candidates, and then you just kind of look and see. How long does that take? Uh, apparently not very long at all. I guess they say it uh, took, uh, I don't know, less than less than a couple of minutes, in fact, wow. to do the whole, whole process. They better be careful. Ashcroft might be on their tail soon. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we might actually find out what Nixon said on those tapes, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if uh, 28 minutes of blank tape uh, is, <laughs> is quite as easy as, as one blocked out word. But <laughs> Certainly, they should be censoring this stuff, anyway, that we're saying. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, very cool stuff, and uh, I guess one criticism is that uh, it doesn't actually give you the exact words. It gives you a bunch of candidate words. Mm -hmm. So the government might be worried more that this could be a concern because the possible words that could be said might be more damaging than the actual words that said. <laughs> <laughs> They're saying, well, maybe it might just be better just to give the uncensored version, which they should be doing anyway. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it might be a push towards, you know, open information. Right. <laughs> So this is very cool stuff, and uh, it was uh, published in uh, the recent edition of Nature. All right, so have you eaten plastic before? Uh, I, that's usually my appetizer. <laughs> it's a little bit flavorless. <laughs> you got to try it with wasabi. That's no, that's <laughs> the flavor of everything. Oh, it has a nice crunch. <laughs> yeah. It turns out our um, our fish food may be contaminated with bits of polymers from uh, degradation from landfills and stuff. Lovely. Oh. <laughs> that and like the random needles that uh, <laughs> float around in the sea. So a study that was carried out by Richard Thompson at the University of Plymouth in England has shown fiber-like fragments in plankton in the ocean, and he's attributing that to degraded plastics from waste dump sites oh. going into the ocean. Oh, okay. And uh, this is stuff that's been flowing in recent years. He suggests it's stuff that's been coming into the ocean after 1980. Okay be a massive problem since it's, it's recent yet we don't have a right. good solution for cleaning it up. So it's, it's all just being bioconcentrated by these fishes. Uh, right. Planktons of yeah. the food chain. Wow. So how far are these affected sea life from the landfill? They're basically looking at the fish around the England's southwest coast. It's, it's not like a deep ocean or anything, right. but it's mm. pretty close to land. And what they found is, you know, particles of uh, nylon, polyester, polyethylene, stuff that, you know, we use in our uh, everyday lives. Right. So don't throw your stockings in the sea, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what they're trying to do right now is to figure out what the impact is on the ocean life. I'm going to hazard a guess that it's bad. Me <laughs> <laughs> <You> too. <laughs> I'm not sure about it, but <laughs> that's my guess. All right, so if people want to learn more about the plastics in the sea. They can go to the recent edition of Science, Volume 304. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Brian Gerke joins us to talk to Edmund Bolz, the author of Einstein Defiant. So stay tuned.
welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, and now here's Brian Gerke. Brian? We're talking today to Edmund Blair Bowles, author of Einstein Defiant, Genius versus Genius in the Quantum Revolution. Thanks for being with us today. Great. Thanks for having me. So I guess we'll start what is kind of a, an interesting subtitle of the book, Genius versus Genius in the Quantum Revolution. Um, what exactly does that mean? Well, genius versus genius. The, the geniuses are, one, Albert Einstein, and the other genius is Niels Bohr, the fellow who worked out the uh, model of the uh, hydrogen atom. They had long, multiple quarrels over the quantum revolution of the mid-1920s, but both of these figures were very important in the early quantum phase. Einstein was one of the real founders of uh, quantum of physics. He was uh, just finishing his uh, studies when Planck published his paper that included Planck's constant quantum of action. And Einstein seemed to have realized immediately that this was a revolutionary development. So in 1905, the, his miracle year where he produced paper after paper that revolutionized physics, he produced a paper in which he described what he called light quanta. Today we call them photons. And uh, at that time, of course, the wave theory of light was completely dominant. Maxwell had assumed that uh, light was waves. And so here Einstein is describing the interaction of light and matter in terms of particle interaction. And nobody believed him for 20 years after that. That's in 1905. For the next 20 years, Einstein is going around saying, look, light shows signs of acting like a particle sometimes and sometimes like a wave. And we have to understand this. And people were just saying to him, no, I don't think we do have to do that. And uh, in his paper, he gave a photoelectric law, which ultimately won him the Nobel Prize. And people thought that was probably ridiculous. But it turned out the law was 100% correct. And some people were saying, well, gee, those laws seem to be right. But of course, the reason that Einstein gives for it being right, that can't be true. So Einstein very early on understood that quantum physics was a revolution uh, in the coming. Bohr came up with his model of the atom in which electrons are orbiting a nucleus and from time to time they change from uh, one orbit to another according to a very specific mathematical formula that worked very nicely, works very well with the hydrogen atom. They never quite got it to work with any of the others. So these two men being at the top of their field would meet from time to time and socialize and they would always argue they always disagreed then when the quantum revolution came along with and the quantum revolution is the quantum mechanics of uh, heisenberg max born Paul Dirac, Edward Schrodinger. These people, this was the revolution that Einstein had been calling for, except that, as often happens with people who are anticipating revolutions, didn't go the way he wanted, and he never made his peace with it. So what exactly was the quarrel? I mean, finally people come around to start believing in um, what Einstein's been saying for 20 years, and um, he famously fought against it. So what was the nature of of, uh, his problem with it? Well, Einstein was a great realist. That is to say, he always believed that there were things, there was a reality behind the formulas. And that's what he was really interested in. He, the math was always a way for him to get to the the great reality behind the uh, surface appearance of things. And uh, Bohr was quite a pragmatist. He wasn't worried about what was really back there. He just wanted formulas that worked, language that described the phenomenon. And when quantum mechanics came along, quantum mechanics as the worked out, describes the probabilities of events without there having any causes. That's what's really crucial to understand about Einstein's complaint. When Einstein said God doesn't play dice, he wasn't complaining that the argument was statistical. Einstein himself was a great statistical physicist and had done much great work with statistics, and all his quantum work was statistical. But if I give you statistics saying, oh, well, there's a 50% chance of rain tomorrow, 
what I'm saying is there's a 50% chance the air is going to go this way and 50% is going to go that way. I'm describing some set of causes. But dice, throwing dice, there is no reason for what happens. Uh, it's it's alienated from all physical stuff. But that's what Einstein disagreed, hated, would never accept. He thought there's got to be some reason these things happen. It can't just be, well, this time it came up heads. Right. So the uh, the argument, when it comes down to it, was was about the very basis of uh, of the physics they were doing. That's right. Say, yeah. What, is, it, it, is it real or is it just a, a model? That's right. Universe? That was an old, that's that's been a very very old dispute among scientists and uh, well and you know, philosophers Archimedes, too. <laughs> Archimedes knew that argument very well. But with Copernicus <clears throat> and particularly with Newton and Galileo, they had established that physics is about the real world. There really are these things pushing and pulling. They had kind of moved God from the center to kind of a rule maker and so forth. And the rules were really there and these things were really happening. And Einstein was very much in that tradition. And basically everybody between Newton and Einstein, with the occasional exception of an oddball like Mach, are in that tradition. And then all of a sudden comes the quantum revolution and physics really changed on that point. Yeah. And it, uh, it caused a lot of a lot of difficulties, apparently. Um, one of the things that I find really interesting about the book um, and really satisfying, I think, about the book is the fact that the physics is really in there. I mean, you're talking about physicists, Bohr and Einstein and others are in their high Eisenberg and Ehrenfest and all these guys. Um, and you're talking about them as people, but the physics is there. You're using scientific uh, symbols and equations from time to time, occasionally, and you're talking about effects that aren't really household names, but this is what they were talking about. And so that, I think, is sort of inseparable from what they did. Well, I, just, I don't have to want to scare your, read, your audience. There are not that many uh, mathematical symbols in there, but I did put in a few because they were absolutely crucial to understanding what these people were thinking about. And, uh, I mean, if you're going to talk about these people as people, the physics was a very much a part of their personality. It's what they talked about, what they thought about Einstein lying in bed thinking about physics. Go to bed, I don't know, wake up, oh, I, maybe I've got this or that idea. So it's pretty, I don't think you can really talk about these people in there. I mean, I guess you could talk about Einstein going to parties or something. But uh, if you're going to talk about him as his uh, imagination, you're really going to have to talk about his physics. Just joining us, we're talking to Blair Bowles, author of Einstein Defiant, a new book out now on John Henry Press. Joseph. Joseph Henry Press. Excuse me, misreading by by me. New book out on Joseph Henry Press. Um, so there, if you're going to get into the physics and understanding things like the Compton effect, which comes up a lot, and, and things like that, there must be a lot of research that goes into this, uh, to writing this sort of thing, a lot of understanding. Um, what drove you, I guess, to um, to really delve into these, this material and understand it so well? Well, I should tell the audience, I'm an English major by training, and although I've written a lot about science, I had to learn a great deal of, of science here, or things like the Compton effect, but the issue was I could never understand Einstein if I didn't really work at it, so I've spent the past five years thinking about Einstein. It's been a long time since I was in college, but at some point early in this work, I remember looking up and thinking, wow, I haven't thought this deeply about these deep, abstract, ultimate concepts in a very long time. Uh, and so it's a lot of fun to get back into that sort of thing and, and be writing about people who are thinking so much about it. Well, what can I say about how I did it? I just I just did it. I talked to a lot of people. I, I had uh, a, a physicist, mathematician friend who I spent a lot of time with bouncing ideas off 
of him, and mm-hmm. he would explain to me, oh, you're not quite right on that. And he would very kindly, very patiently get me right. I think it's it's really appropriate that you were writing um, not only about Einstein, but also about Niels Bohr in this, because he was famous for um, for wanting to be able to express anything that he thought about in physics in sort of simple, concrete language that um, that the layperson could understand. And that's really what, what this project is about, is about learning I, it yourself and then being able to explain it uh, well to other people. I hope I did a better job than Bohr. Bohr was shockingly inarticulate guy. It seemed to be, I mean, for a man who wanted, as you say, to put it all into plain language and so forth, he had a very hard time coming up with uh, clear sentences. Uh, I think I have a joke in there by Paul Dirac saying to Bohr, didn't anybody ever tell you that you should know what you're going to say when you start to say it? Well, of course, he was talking about difficult things, so perhaps it's difficult things and to say. He was talking about difficult things, and he was also always trying to be polite and make sure that he included whatever your doubts were. And if he's talking to three people and and they each have their own point of view, he's trying to respect all three of those points of view while getting his in there. So people would listen to him, and they had to work hard to understand. Whereas Einstein, Einstein, I have to say I was quite pleasantly surprised. He was a very clear writer. I think his relativity paper was, I was quite surprised by it. It was one of the clearest statements on relativity I've ever read. Mm-hmm. It is one of the one of the other really great things about this book is it it is sort of nominally a book about Einstein and about Einstein's thinking on this, but it brings in all of the other uh, great physicists of that era who sort of, um, at least in the public perception, tend to get short shrift by comparison to Einstein. Um, Interesting to see how he uh, how he interacted with people like Bohr and say the fact that Bohr and Einstein received their Nobel prizes pretty much simultaneously. Yeah, on the same day. Yeah. Even though uh, Einstein won the prize for 1921 and Bohr for 1922, they didn't announce the 1921 prize for a year. So all these all these you know physicists who just um, laid as much of the groundwork as Einstein did, and it's good to see see how they all sort of interacted with each other. Yeah, well, of course, when you're telling a story about Einstein and his physics, it's going to, even though Einstein spent a lot of time sitting in rooms thinking quietly by himself, he was constantly dealing with um, people like Max Planck and Max Born, Hendrik Lorenz. He loved Lorenz. And, you know, for a long time, relativity was referred to as a Lorenz-Einstein theory. Then Einstein became a superstar. Sure. Well, and all the equations that you use in relativity are actually named after Lorenz and not... Uh not Einstein. That's at right. Least in special but, relativity. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Uh, uh, Lorenz put them forward a year earlier, but Einstein, often darkest Switzerland, really didn't have access to libraries. Didn't know that. So he didn't know those equations. He came up with them independently yeah. a year later. And he put them into sort of a better context. And, as well. and he, he gave them a, um, a meaning. Right that uh, Lorenz had missed. I think we're uh, getting toward the end of the interview here. Just want to uh, thank you again for coming by and talking to us. Your book, uh, Einstein Defined, it's it's out now, is that correct? It's out in the bookstores now, yes. All right, so you can find it at Better Bookstores Everywhere or at uh, Joseph Henry Press. Is that right. the, correct, the correct publisher? All right, well... Um, it's been a pleasure to have you. We've been talking to Edmund Blair Bowles, author of the new book, Einstein Defiant, Genius versus Genius in the Quantum Revolution, about the debates between Einstein and Bohr over quantum physics. Thanks a lot for being with us today. Okay, thanks for having me. I've loved being here. All right. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Brian Gerke. Thanks a lot, Brian. And this is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find how a fiber optic cable works, so stay tuned.
Dr. Brecker Grox, and finally joining us is Dr. Matrix with the answer to last week's question of the week. Doctor? Hmm, all right there, Mr. Anderson, and now it's time for the answer to last week's question of the week. What is the fiber optic cable good for? Well, the fiber optic cable allows you to transmit information over large distances due to a property called total internal reflection. And now you know how to jack in. Okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with this week's question of the week. Who employs the most number of math PhDs in the world? If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you may wish you just didn't know. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grogs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. And if you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grogs, you can email us at grogs at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grogs, this is Lynn Lee. And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.